welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, hope you're having a good one. So, my guest this week is an awesome one. I'm speaking to Dr. Anthony Mazzarelli, and he is the CEO of Cooper University Healthcare, which is the leading provider of health services, medical education, and clinical research in Southern New Jersey and Delaware Valley in the US. So Anthony received his master's degree in bioethics from the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. And he trained in emergency medicine at Cooper University Hospital, where he also served as chief resident and clearly made his way up to chief exec. So as well as his CEO role, Anthony is actively practicing in the emergency department at Cooper in Camden. So he and I had an awesome conversation about all things health tech. I hope you enjoy it. So Anthony, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing? I was going to say this morning or this afternoon. Where, where, where are you in the world, Anthony? So I, uh, I'm sitting, James, in Camden, New Jersey, uh, in the States, which is right across from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, right, right across the river from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and in southern New Jersey. Very nice. I'm out here in uh, not so sunny, almost London in Surrey in the south, uh, southeast. Um, so quite a way away. And I've not actually got myself out to the US in quite a long time. I'm looking forward to getting out there. There's definitely, uh, well, all the guests of this podcast, I say at the end of episodes that I need to go and see. So uh, I might add you to that list by the end of the episode. Let's put, see how the chat on goes. The list. Come, come to <laughs> Camden, come to Philadelphia. We'll, we'll show you around. Amazing. A lot, a lot, of, a lot of great healthcare, a lot of healthcare technology. Do you know what uh, it is funny? forward here in this area, yeah. Yeah, it is funny. The, the more kind of people I get on this podcast, especially from the US, you realize that it's not just a Silicon Valley thing, is it? Because healthcare is absolutely as global as it gets. It is literally everywhere. And so the innovators are everywhere. The, the entrepreneurs are everywhere. The intrapreneurs are everywhere because obviously the hospitals are. But um, you, I suppose you, you tick a lot of those boxes. So I'm looking forward to getting into your background. But um, the way we start these, Anthony, is that we get you to tell a bit of your story. And so what people tend to do is start at around the time they were kind of inspired by healthcare or technology. And I know for yourself, it's probably both. But um, yeah, it'd be great to hear a bit of your story, my friend. Sure. So um, my name is Anthony Mazzarelli, and I, uh, I was, wanted to go into medicine at a very young age. I am the, the son, grandson, and nephew of chiropractors. Oh, wow. So I, I grew up around healthcare, and um, my, my father and my grandfather were in a practice together here in southern New Jersey. And I, I knew I wanted to go into medicine, um, but was more interested in, in medicine as a whole and not necessarily chiropractic, although it did interest me. Um, and then I, I went to medical school right out of college um, and ended up being interested in emergency medicine. But my interest in medical school went right to medical school. I had a sort of a broader interest in medicine and bioethics and policy. So I ended up doing a, a joint degree program where I went to medical school, law school, and got my master's in bioethics all at the same time. Wow. So, How long did that take you? Uh, it was a six-year program, so I actually Amazing. sort of shaved off two years by doing it all together. Amazing. Um, and uh, went to Robert Wood Johnson Medical School in New Jersey. was in the Camden program, um, and that was a joint degree where they sort of worked with the University of Pennsylvania for law school and for my master's in bioethics. So I finished all three programs um, and then 
was at the clinical campus for Robert Wood Johnson Medical School here in Camden at Cooper University Healthcare, where I now work. That was the, the hospital affiliate, was the clinical affiliate. So I got on campus here in 1999 as a medical student and have never left. And wow. So came, yeah. So That's amazing. Back, yeah. So I came back here as a, um, as a resident to do my emergency medicine residency and um, then was here as a resident, was chief resident, and then started doing more and more um, sort of administrative roles. I thought I wanted to be in academics, which ended up being academics, teaching residents and medical students and starting to write some papers. And I taught in the law school for a semester and thought I wanted to really go down that route, but wow. I got more involved in administration and started doing administrative projects and then sort of doing different administrative roles around the hospital. Um, and then one thing led to another and, and I ended up being the chief uh, medical officer for the health system. Um, I was vice president of strategic planning for a while and got more involved in the business side. Then I was the chief physician executive running our, um, our physician practice, which at this point now is 730 physicians that practice within 16 different hospitals, not all hospitals we own. And now I am, as of two years ago or about two years ago, um, we have a co-president model and now co-CEO and president model. So I'm now the co-president and CEO of the health system. I still practice emergency medicine. Wow. And um, so now, you know, the place where I started as a medical student in 1999, now um, I get to practice medicine and have the honor to be able to work with my co-CEO, Kevin O'Dowd, and, and get to work with, you know, 8,000 employees, over 8,000 employees to wow. provide care in a, a very mission-based organization. And we, you know, it's, it's a dream job. That is awesome. And I, I'm really looking forward to talking about this with you because in, in the way that you described your background, I think you and I had a very similar experience seemingly when we started doing healthcare. You described it as getting involved in lots of administrative projects. And that's basically what I did too, because I think as soon as I got onto the, onto the wards, as we call it in the UK, um, we or I started spotting problems with the way things were run. It was more of a systems problem than it was as a limiting factor. Anyway, it was more systems than it was people because the people were just breaking the necks that, you know, the clinicians and not just doctors, obviously, but nurses, physiotherapists, OT, everybody is, is doing everything they possibly can to make the health system as efficient as they can make it. And it was very apparent to me that if we were going to make any big strides in the quality of care that we delivered, it would actually have to be system improvements rather than the kind of really incremental changes you might get with kind of clinical improvements or, you know, changing doses or that side of things. It seemed to me that the kind of the biggest gains that could be made were to actually do that stuff. So I ended up shadowing the chief exec. I ended up shadowing the finance director and learning it that way whereas it sounds like you did so much of that learning actually even at a college or university you know or medical school because you're doing all these other things as well i mean what was that like for you you know stepping onto the the the, the shop floor call it as a doctor having had all of that exposure i suppose to other things to other ways of thinking you know the the law the ethics the policy was it was it frustrating for you to see that the way things could be run differently or was it, was it something that you grew into? I mean, I'm interested to know kind of what it was like for you in that initial phase. Well, I think you described it exactly as I would, which was I started to become, well, I thought I would use that background 
to sort of, you know, sort of geek out and, and write. Yeah. And, and, and it, it ended up being um, that I loved to try to fix things. Mm-hmm. I, I like to take away pain, whether that is my patient's pain uh, or the pain that, uh, that people feel in trying to work within the U.S. healthcare system or within an organization. And, and to me, they're both the same thing. So much so that actually about a year ago, um, I co-authored a book called Compassionomics, which is actually about the, all of the evidence about how compassion actually um, can actually improve outcomes with patients. It can lower healthcare costs and can actually, is actually good for those that actually provide compassionate care. So, I mean, it really, this idea of taking away pain actually leads, led me into administration because I'd see it sort of as one of the same. And that toolkit, as, as you sort of point out, I think just helped me to expand the set of solutions I would think of. Like you're saying, thinking at a systems level, which I think is the best way yeah. to solve problems sort of than one off. And I just got deeper and deeper into thinking things that way and thinking how to sort of solve problems. I'm not claiming to necessarily have been any better at it than other people, but just thought in those terms that led me to get deeper and deeper into thinking about different parts of the health system to try to go to solve problems than whatever was sort of right in front of me at the time. Yeah, I love that, that you fix pain and you just happen to come across the pain points of the systems and that's what led you to solve those problems. I absolutely love that. I love that as a compassionomic. Was it compassion? Compassion. Compassionomics. Yeah. Compassionomics. So, compassionomics. We it's a we consider it a field of study. We started publishing. It's that's my field of research, right? So, we started publishing um, this idea that it's a field of study, which is studying the health, healthcare, and effects on those that give care. So there is lots of literature about this. So there's what we did was we had a I, when I became CMO. Our CEO here, or when I became CMO, Chief Medical Officer, our CEO at the time came to me and she said, hey, look, you need to, here's your charge. You need to increase our patient experience scores. You need to increase our physician engagement scores. And I was was young to to be in that position. She said, but don't worry. I'm going to help you. We hired a consultant. Mm-hmm. And, he, and this consultant comes and they gave me a list of all the things that the faculty needed to do in order to uh, increase those scores. And we, had, we were a brand new medical school at the time. We were a clinical campus when I was a student, but we had just become a full four-year medical school. So this faculty, which at the time was probably about 500 um, faculty members, now, like I said, we're about 730. The, I said, oh, man, I'm never going to get the faculty to do these sort of mushy <laughs> sort of things, right? Yeah. These things that, so I turned to our number one NIH researcher at the time. He was published in sepsis and resuscitation research. And he was the guy, if you turned to anyone on the campus, he was the most published faculty member. And I turned to him because he was quadruple boarded. He was boarded in internal medicine, <laughs> emergency medicine, critical care medicine, and neurointensive care medicine. And you said, we need evidence for yeah, well, I, Yeah, I turned to yeah. him and I said, what do you think of this stuff? I want you to be one of our champions to champion this stuff. And he said, no way. I'm the, <laughs> I'm the like research guy. And I said, no, here's what I need, Steve. I need you to science this up for me. Like, is there any data behind this? So he came back about two weeks later and he'll be the first to tell you that he thought he'd come back and just sort of blow it off. And he said, you won't believe there is a significant amount of data behind this. And that led us to search further and further. 
And then that led us to look at over a thousand abstracts and 280 articles and essentially curate all the data and come to the conclusion that compassion is an evidence-based medicine. It is wow. in the art of science, but it's in the art of medicine, but it's also in the science of medicine and the science is good. And it, it is actually something that you can, it is meaningful and it is measurable. And that's what made us decide to write a book. It's not what we think, it's what we found. And that's what the book and the field we call Compassionomics is. And, and the book Compassionomics, the revolutionary scientific evidence that caring makes a difference, that it improves outcomes, it lowers costs, and it actually decreases burnout. And that's the book that came out uh, in late, uh, mid 2019. And um, something that we really think about not only from a patient care perspective, but from a leadership perspective. Um, and I actually think the answer, and I'm sure we'll get to this, is technology. Yeah, technology is one of the reasons it. why we have burnout, and I think technology is one of the answers. This is exactly what I was going to say, which is exactly where my my mind went to, which is that whenever I talk about health tech, and you know, people can often roll their eyes about like, oh, more technology, more things, more more stuff to do, and all the rest of it, my view, and I'm sure your view too of technology is, is that it should emancipate clinicians to, you know, enable them to have the time to care. It shouldn't be extra things that you do. It shouldn't be more work. There should absolutely be a net reduction in work. The, the whole pathway should change through technology to, to almost redefine what a clinician even is and actually put that care back in. And what you've done there is really neatly given me a language and a framework and a bit of evidence to actually say why I've been thinking this. But most people think the opposite, right? And so every time I do a talk about compassionomics, someone will invariably, because we'll talk about how, you know, eyeball time has gone down. People, you know, yeah. clinicians in the U S in studies that only spend 12% of their time looking patients in the eye. And invariably the moment I finish the talk, someone thinks it's an anti EMR anti-technology talk and they'll say, yeah, it's because of the EMR electronic medical record, you know, Epic's a four letter word, right? Which mm -hmm. is the, you know, the largest, Epic and Cern are the largest electronic medical records in the US. And I'll say, no, here's the deal. We ended up, we didn't tame it. We didn't put it in the right way. It got put in in the US. And what we need to do is we need to use technology to our advantage. And I always tell people, Medical technology is incredibly advanced, but information technology in medicine mm -hmm. is incredibly behind. I mean, in the U, I'll tell, I don't know how it is. I don't know if it's this way where you are, but if you're in the U.S. and you're in a scavenger hunt and someone says, go find um, carbon paper, go to the nearest health system. Because you'll find carbon paper. Oh, yeah. Fax machines. Fax oh, machines. yeah. Fax yeah, machines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, we still celebrate institutions in the U.S., hospitals, converting to an electronic medical record. Yes, same here, yeah. Can you, think, can you think of any other industry where people are still doing things on paper, like lawyers to their clients handing things in on paper, on dead trees? I mean, mm. it, it's unbelievable how behind we are. Now, that has to do with sort of the perverse incentives in healthcare, but I'll tell you a story. When I was a third-year medical student, 1999, I... Um, said, this is crazy. I'm going to type my notes out as a medical student. Mm. And I created a, a word uh, form, you know, where you can use Microsoft Word to put in uh, blocks and, you know, forms. You can type it out real quick. Sure. 
So, and I made the background look just like the progress note. So it is <laughs> identical. Like no one, it was, and I had, um, cause we didn't have an electronic medical record here yet. And after a couple of days I had, um, I had like the nurse manager on the floor come to me and say, you know, you can't do that. <laughs> I said, what, what, what do you mean? You can't do that. Like we don't have uh, electronic medical record. So, uh, all right, I guess. And, and then I went and talked to like my attending. He said, no, no, it's fine. So then a few more days go by and then I get called into the um, Dean's office and they say, listen, you got to stop doing that thing where you type <laughs> your medical record. And I said, what? Why? Why? Yeah. And he, here's the answer. And I'm not kidding. Well, here's the concern. Um, it kind of went all around the hospital and it came back to us. Everybody can read your note. And because they can read your note and they can't really read the other notes as well, because it's the scribbled oh handwriting, goodness. it's going to carry a disproportionate amount of weight. And you're wow. just a medical student and they're worried, you know, that no one's going to be able to tell what the attending wants to do. That the is attending so position. interesting. And I said, you can, <laughs> all right. You know, so this idea <laughs> that we were somehow better off and what people don't realize, at least in the U S is that at the same time there was the rise of the electronic medical record, there was a rise in the regulatory burden of documentation. Right. So the check boxes and all those other things, that's actually what they hate about the EMR. It's not just the typing, because you have young people that hate the EMR too, and they're better typists. Mm. It's, it's these regulations. So I believe that, um, the, but I will tell you that here's the good news. I believe 10 years from now, James, no one will ever type uh, a chart again. Because I believe physicians see patients for free. They get paid to do paperwork. And so what's going to happen is there's companies, and we actually just um, signed with and partnered with a company called Nuance. They're the company that does Dragon. I don't know who does your dictation. If you, you ever use a dictation software, um, you know, there's a couple different companies, but, sure. but Dragon Dictation is sort of the gold standard. So Nuance is the company that, that does Dragon Dictation. Well, they have a new technology, which is amazing, called Dragon Ambient Experience. And we are partnering with them to bring that in um, that's, that's on its way. And Dra Dragon Ambient Experience, I believe, whether it's their technology, who I think is going to win this horse race, but other mm. people are competing for it. Where the doctor, you have to see a demo of this, James. You got to, yeah. where the doctor and the patient talk and they just talk like normal. They look each other in the eye. They talk. It's old school. No one's, no one's writing down. No one's typing, you know, their face in the yeah. EMR. And it listens and it creates, it doesn't just dictate, it creates the note. And structures using artificial intelligence we yeah. like to call it augmented intelligence just and, and it does everything so that it relieves the burden from the physician it'll put the orders in it'll do everything so that you can focus on the patient wow and i believe 10 years from now that's going to be everywhere yeah because if you had to literally choose what the optimum consultation would be ignoring the fact anybody needed notes it would just literally be a one-to-one -one interaction where everybody was fully focused and then yeah yes you know it's i can't tell you the amount of a and e shifts that i've had where you you're not only doing so much paperwork that's obvious but even sort of afraid of how much paperwork you're going to have to do and all, all these sorts of things and these are things on your mind that just shouldn't need to be there and, and it comes back to your compassionomics thing you know these are the things on clinicians minds that 
that technology exists in order oh, yeah. to free them from this. And, and not only, James, is it that it frees you up because we don't like doing it. It's not just to make us happy as physicians. There is significant data yeah. that when you can connect with a patient, that they're more likely to take their medicine that they're, yeah. going, they're less likely to feel pain the same way. There are 22 different mechanisms. Their outcomes are going to be better. That when a physician connects with a patient, there's more likely to order less consults. You're more likely to, the total charges on the year are, are gonna be less wow. for what you do with that patient. That, the, that when you, as the provider yourself, you light up the reward pathways in your brain and you have more positive emotion, you're less likely to be burned out. Wow. The actual benefits of connecting with the patient are just not about making physicians happy because we don't like doing paperwork. There are tangible benefits to the patients tangible benefits to the system and tangible benefits to the person providing care. So it's not, and it's not just for doctors. I believe this will end up being for nurses, for all caregivers. So this is technology solving some of the problem that technology and regulation put us in because we're taking back control of that medical record, um, which I think the EMR has put us in a little bit of this, but I think it gets overly blamed as the problem. Yes. Whereas it's more of a symptom of a, of a bigger problem. Interesting. I think it is absolutely wonderful that there's somebody like you that has that view of things and has that kind of, I don't know what you'd call it, I suppose perspective on the why, as in why are we bringing this technology in? It's not because you like tech, you might like tech, but the reason is that you're, you know, you, that you might be championing more technology is not because you just like it or you think it could do a good job or any of these things. It seems like you're, you're going to be doing this very deliberately for very specific reasons, not only that it improves the quality of care, but actually it improves the balance sheet of the hospital at the end of the day, if indeed you take a long-term view, I imagine. And so I'm interested now to hear about Cooper University Healthcare. I'm interested in kind of the way that you guys are structured in terms of looking at new technology. I mean, how do sure. you guys appraise new technology? There's so much out there. You could start at the VCs and see what people are invested in. You could start looking at the hospital down the road and see what, what works there. How do you guys look at technology and how do you think about bringing it in as a provider? Sure. So I think I have to give you a little background about who we are to tell you how we have yeah, to approach please. that. So, so we're a, a $1.5 billion health system revenue-wise um, located in Camden, New Jersey. So Camden uh, used to be one of the poorest, most dangerous cities in the country. It's, that's definitely changing for the better. Um, but we're located in Camden, but our catchment area really is all of South Jersey. So it's this sort of the seven counties of South Jersey. It's, it's several million people. We have a hundred outpatient locations, but only the one flagship tertiary care academic center, which is a level one trauma center. Mm. We employ, like I was saying, over 700 physicians that go into 16 different hospitals in the area. We have about okay. 73 different specialties. We have the medical school, about 330 um, GME um, spots, graduate medical um, education, so yep. residents and fellows. And so with that backdrop, we are still a safety net hospital that is very mission-based for what we're doing in Camden. So we don't have a very large margin to be able to say, hey, we're going to you know, do a lot of experimenting with technology. So yeah. in my mind, technology really needs to be a strategy. And you have to use, if you just take your, your chief information, uh, your CIO, your, um, mm. and you take your 
um, whoever your chief medical information officer is or your head of informatics, and we can talk about the difference between the two, which I think is important. But if you take your, your technology people in your organization and you just say, hey, our only thing to do is to keep technology running correctly, you're, you're, you're going to be missing out. You have to think of technology as a strategy. Mm. Um, and I think what happens is you have a lot of institutions that see the investments they made in technology with an electronic medical record mm -hmm. and they bought Lamborghinis. They bought Epic yes. and Cerner and the Lamborghinis sitting in the garage and they <laughs> haven't taken it out for a spin. Yeah. They listen to the radio, right? You have to use it to improve quality. You have to use it to standardize care. You have to use it to, and, and consider all your investments as a strategy. And um, that ha you have to have a vision for doing it. And that's how we approach technology. So when COVID hit and we were in a hotspot in New Jersey and New York, and we were one of the places where 25% of our beds were filled with COVID patients and we had, a, and they were very sick and we had to turn floors that were non-ICU floors and double our ICU capacity. What we did was we took the fact that we had a strategy on IT and that we had technology we knew over the next several years we were going to do. And we said, let's first go to that roadmap and speed it up. Mm -hmm. And so technology was one of the first things we looked at. How can we use technology to use less personal protection equipment, PPE? How can we use technology as the solutions to have uh, doctors and nurses in the rooms less to burn less PPE, to have them less exposed, but still have really good connection with patients? How do we connect patients with their family members since member, family members can't come into the hospital? How do we use technology so that our nurses and doctors can use, for instance, Nuance Dragon to, to dictate into the medical record rather than having to use the normal microphones, let's go ahead and, and deploy what's called PowerMic Mobile so they can use their own cell phone so they don't have to go and share microphones during a brand new pandemic of a virus that we know nothing about mm -hmm. when you're worried about how they can you know, give things to each other. So we used it for uh, remote monitoring. We used it to do telemedicine in other places. Um, and we thought about technology for communication. So what kind of dashboards can we quickly put up and communicate to people? Um, mm -hmm. Creating websites, doing what we're doing here, which was uh, we put in equipment so that we could do a daily broadcast to have people call in and give them information and then put that audio out to the rest of the organization. So we tried to not just do email communication daily, but do audio uh, every day and then occasionally do video and a mix of audio to the rest of the organization. To me, that's all using technology strategically during the, during the pandemic so that we could, um, and these were all things we had, we knew we wanted to do eventually yes. have a roadmap for technology and we sped it up. That I find really interesting because that's a very deliberate example of what I think has happened in the UK in quite a rea reactive way in, in the sense that, or not reactive, I suppose, organic way in the sense that you had a pipeline, you had ideas of things you wanted to do. You had a, a, a roadmap of, of how you wanted that to go. As you say, you've literally just gone and sped it up. I think what was interesting in the UK and the health system here, I think is that what we had with COVID-19 when it happened was more of a, it, how do I describe it? It was more, we, we didn't have the pipeline of activity to go to, to speed anything up necessarily. I mean, there was a bit of that stuff potentially from the center because our, our health system is nationalized, right? So we've got a national health system, but I think more, it was like 
we are now about to face all of these different problems. We haven't really been thinking about technology, but now we've just got to be open to it. And I think the doors just flew open to any kind of realistic business model or way of new, new model of working or, I mean, particularly the obvious example is telemedicine. Telemedicine proliferated so quickly and so widely during COVID-19 that, and it was, it was, it was nobody sort of forcing anything. It was more just the case of this is the only way that you're going to be able to see a doctor in primary care if you don't want to go to the, the general practitioner. So it was, it, yeah, it was, it was different, I suppose, here in the UK, but I well, suppose it's, it's really encouraging you, that you, that you had the opportunity. Well, right? it's funny because I didn't even mention telemedicine, which was probably the biggest lever we pulled. <laughs> yeah. And it's now so commonplace that it's interesting I didn't even bring it up. But yeah, yeah well, I know. Tele- right? I almost telemedicine, about it. Yeah, telemedicine for us was one of the biggest levers we pulled. And uh, we were not doing, we were only doing telemedicine prior to COVID hitting. Um, so I would say we were a bit behind on that. We were doing it, um, as a tertiary care center, we were doing it to other hospitals. So yes. we had telestroke and teleneurology where we were helping out remote emergency departments um, to see patients, but we weren't doing it directly to patients in, in that telemedicine setting. And we were able to stand it up. And, and that's where we sort of did a combination. And I give a lot of credit to our IT department, our informatics department. We knew we had to do it right away and had to be nimble. And using, you know, sometimes, you know, better's the enemy, you know, perfect, better's the enemy of good, mm-hmm. right? So we knew the best way to do it, the better way to do it is to use one of the set uh, vendors with our EMR, which is Epic. But we knew that everyone was going to want to do that at once. So that was going to take weeks. So we started down that path, but we actually set up a, doing it in sort of WebEx, which is like the zo- the Zoom version we had, sure. Because the federal government in the U.S. let us do that in a privacy compliant way. We stood that up in in like three days, four days. Wow. So we were doing it in WebEx right away, so we could provide that care. And when in the background, we were setting up the better way to do it. Because if we just waited for the better way, we would have not been providing care that that people needed to have. And um, I really give credit to our teams because we think of technology as a strategy because they're just not, you know, IT sitting around waiting for, you know, someone to open a ticket to fix their computer because they're part of this, they're at the table for strategy that um, they feel like they're part of solving problems. And I think that's, that's important. And because it's a strategy, there's not particularly a question around, is this going to stick? Because again, that's something that keeps coming up in the UK. Um, you know, how much of this is that we're doing now is actually likely to stick around? Is it, is, is, has the value really been enough for us to not revert to how things once were? But it seems that you've gone to things that are already in the roadmap. You've gone to things that you already were planning. And so that, that speeding up of things and yes, not everything is going to stick and stay. That, that's just the nature of technology, I suppose, and things pivot and change. But it means that you've seemingly been able to do the right things in the right order, if that makes any sense, because you've almost done some thinking beforehand because it's attached to strategy. Well, it's, you know, it's interesting because in the U.S., for better or for worse, what tends to drive behavior change is the reimbursement system. Yes. Because we don't have the nationalized system like you have. Um, we have a, although we do have an interesting situation in the U.S. people don't think about a lot, which is the number one payer of healthcare in the U.S. 
is essentially the U.S. government through Medicare and, and Medicaid. Interesting. Who is also our regulator. <laughs> and a lot of the insurance companies follow suit for what, what they do. But in the end of the day, it's the reimbursement system that ultimately tends to change behavior. So right now, everybody, you know, they started paying for telemedicine almost on par from what they did before. Not all levels of reimbursement were the same, but some. So I think it's how, how we continue to get reimbursed will ultimately probably decide how much telemedicine happens. It'll definitely be more than, bef- than pre-COVID, but I don't think it'll be as much as uh, what I would call sort of peri-COVID. Mm-hmm. even though we're still in that period now. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I think that someone would, uh, some people might deny that's the case that, oh, well, reimbursement doesn't drive behavior, but it, it kind of does. I think, yeah, that's the reality. I think it does. Yeah, it's a reality. So tell me about what's in the pipeline at the moment. What, it, what, what are the next things that you're looking at, if indeed you can say? Well, that, that, um, that Dragon Ambient experience is the thing I am most excited yeah. about because I think it is not only um, what you can think of for productivity and efficiency, all the things that I'm sure Nuance probably tries to sell it on. Mm-hmm. But what to me is most exciting about it is what it's going to do for engaging physicians, what it's going to do for engaging patients, what it will do and how that will drive outcomes, all the things that we wrote about in Compassionomics. And then from a recruitment standpoint, yes. being able to recruit physicians and, 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 and APPs and people who are going to use it. So um, I think it's, it's for everything that when they probably try to recruit people to buy the technology for everything they can think of, I can think of five other things that make me excited about that technology. So um, I'm really, to me, that's really exciting. And I'm sure it'll take a little while before it's perfected, but that's one of the things that in medicine has me most excited. Um, I, me, I think that is too, something, frankly. Yeah, um, yeah, I would think that's the tech, that's the nirvana, right? Yeah, of tech. Literally. And I think <laughs> I'm just, I'm just thinking like from, a, from like a recruitment perspective, it's like so unfair on anyone that doesn't have this thing because you're literally just saying, do you want to write notes for like 75% of your entire medical career? Or do you want to go to this hospital where you don't have to write a thing and you can focus on your patients? I mean, th- okay, there's going to be no brainer, some utility. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. It's a no brainer. Yeah. There's going to be some utility to writing notes in, especially potentially in the early days of being a doctor, maybe. And like seeing, seeing things written down be able to structure it and all the rest of it. But like, well, you still get it. You still get it in front of you and you have to sign off on it. And you still right. need to obviously read what other, you know, what comes to you from right. other people. Right. But um, I think that's really uh, important. I think, you know, augmented intelligence to help in decision support is also something that's, uh, that's coming. Um, and I have seen some examples of that. So not just writing your note, but having, having it um, in the EMR to, you know, this idea that we can hold everything in our brain that we need to know, I think is, is medicine's just too complex. So having Sweet. decision support in the EMR to pop up and say, hey, look, I can go back and I can see that this patient had this combination of things. You really need to think about this. Absolutely. Um, I think that's something that's going to come and not just in discrete areas, but using natural language processing to read things that are scanned in the chart and read things that are, um, you know, to see all of that record and give you a better picture and distill it down in a meaningful way. I think that decision support is interesting and I think will really help. Um, And then I think what's coming down the line after that is decision support and artificial intelligence and augmented intelligence on, uh, on, you know, imaging 
um, mm. that eventually there'll be, you know, radiologists will be helped in that way with, um, with x-rays and CT scans and, and those kinds of things as well. So I think there's a lot of technology that will help us be able to not only have less errors, but also help us engage with patients. And all that I think is very exciting because we're already there when it comes to a lot of medical devices and surgeries and, and those will continue to advance. But it's the information side that I think we're more behind than people understand. Mm -hmm. One thing I do want to touch on is that I, I've seen and heard from so many innovators, so many entrepreneurs that build health tech solutions. And I think one thing that tends to strike me, I suppose, particularly in the UK, is that when you're looking at a solution that improves the lives of clinicians, it's often quite difficult to prove the business model. And the reason that I say that is because often, I say, particularly here in the UK, when you say you save clinicians time, it's never a cash in hand saving because yes, you're saving a clinician an hour in their day, but you still have to pay them for a full day. Unless you sack one in 24 people, you're, you're never going to recoup that as a hospital. But I think it, it's interesting to me just how much this links to your work on compassionomics, because it seems like the first step here, or indeed perhaps not the first step, but it's such an important step in building solutions that make clinicians lives better by proving that when you give them the time to care and you improve the relationship between clinician and patient and you do that by taking away any administrative burden it opens the door to a business model for far more of these things to happen and i think one frustration that i have had in all the things that I've seen in the UK with, with entrepreneurs that have pitched and the rest of it is that, oh, we can save clinicians a bit of time. But I suppose what hasn't been done here is the link between saving those clinicians time and actually how that translates. Now, I suppose with, with the dragon system that you've mentioned, it's such a monumental save in time that you can't help but accept the fact that it is a completely different way of even practicing medicine. And therefore it is worth a piece of piece of work to look at the health economics of it. But I think it is just so interesting to me that the business model with this work that having been done is now opened up to say, yes, let's give them even more time back. Let's see what else we can do. And I well, you that. make a good point, which is uh, it is, I've seen this over and over again with, it is very hard to be a healthcare technology entrepreneur and, and, and figure out who is going to pay Always. for the thing that you provide value. And here's yeah. why I think that is, at least in the US system where I'm familiar with. And here's why. You have this idea. The idea is disruptive in some way that will make a meaningful difference. So let's say that difference, either whether it's physician time or it's outcomes or it's all of them, mm -hmm. right? The problem is that that difference is spread among different stakeholders. So in, it helps the physicians, it helps the hospital, it helps the payers, it helps the patients. The problem is that's a four-way split. So no one group has enough critical mass nor <laughs> enough capital budget yeah to in order to fully invest yeah does you see what i'm saying so i've seen that so many times where i go oh man i love that technology but i don't have enough margin to invest in it because i have these other competing things mm. but i can see that value 
And I can see how together between all the stakeholders, by the way, the other stakeholder are employers because in the US, yes. 155 million people have employees, their employer provides their insurance. It, but it takes all the stakeholders together because no one stakeholder benefits enough. Yes. And that's, that's an interesting dilemma that is a byproduct or a consequence of the way the US healthcare systems incentives run. Mm -hmm. So that's why you see a lot of the time where you see large market share. So the, um, in areas of the country where you have one dominant health system have such large market share that they also become a payer because they can't get any more market share. The, the amount of money it would take to get more market <laughs> share is so high that the only way they can, they can actually end up driving more revenue is to actually be the payer as well, yes. right? They now have multiple pieces of those stakeholders. They're much more likely to be able to do more innovative things. Oh, I see. And, and I don't mean to take anything away from them. I don't mean to take away from them. In fact, I'm jealous. Yes, but I, indeed. I, so I don't mean to take away and say you know, they are innovative. I'm not saying they're not innovative. But just like you were saying earlier in the podcast, necessity is the mother of invention. So they end up in a position where, listen, I'm not going to spend so many more millions to go from a market share of 75 to 76 versus <laughs> a market share of 10 to 11, right? So indeed. I'm better off spending the next amount of money building an insurance product so I can be both pay. And then once I'm payer and provider and I have both sides of that coin, now I can really get innovative because yes. I'm not. And so, and paying for value really matters. And so that's where I'm jealous of those organizations and would love to get there someday where now you can really start to do some of those innovative things and those new technologies make more sense. So a lot of the health entrepreneurs end up partnering with those kinds of systems um, and we, we partner with groups too. Um, but I'm saying that's where I can imagine the frustration being a, a, a startup wanting to find someone to um, not just invest in you, but to find your first clients. Yes. And those first, who are the clients? You know, when you find, when you create a technology that can read an x-ray, who's going to pay you for that? Yeah. <laughs> right? Who, is it the device company? Is it a doctor's group? Is it a hospital? Who's going to, you, how do you find that? And so it's very interesting because of the way there's sort of sometimes perverse incentives. And we see that so often here in the UK. Trust me, that is, that is a, it's, it's, a, it's a frustration I share with you and, and the many, many entrepreneurs listening will, will certainly share that with us. But I, I'm interested in, um, you mentioned AI for images. You mentioned a couple of other technologies. What, what are the bits aside from Dragon that you've obviously mentioned that, that, are, that are exciting you at the moment from a, from a pure technology? Let's ignore the business sure. models. The business model might make no sense. What are the, what's the tech that you're geeking out on, basically? Yeah, so aside from that, there's a, a technology where um, patients interact almost like they have a, uh, a text message, like they're text messaging a friend. Mm. So like, it's like a bot. And that bot is connected to their entire medical record. Yeah. So and asynchronous communication, right? It's asynchronous. And, and, that, and they can ask it, uh, when's my next appointment? Or when, uh, where do I get, and we don't have this here, but we're we have been talking to a company that does it. And, and they can say, uh, or if they drive near 
the pharmacy where they have a prescription they haven't picked up yet. It says, hey, you're, you should pick up your oh, wow. medication. Or if they go to an emergency department that's 10 states away and they just take a picture of their discharge instructions and they got an antibiotic that is, you know, that it looks like it's inconsistent with something way back in their medical record because they grew out a bacteria that was resistant to it, you know, before it would alert them and alert their primary doctor at the same time. Wow. So it's essentially a, a connected to a brain that thinks of their entire medical record all the time and you can just feed it and it can alert the doctor and the patient and bridge those two. So it's, it essentially eliminates a lot of the having to call your doctor and tell them where you've been yeah. and what you're doing and, and bridges that and is constantly looking at the medical record and interacting with it. So it's almost like decision support, not only for your primary care doctor, for what you're doing at the patient level. I think that's very exciting. Yeah, I think coming from somebody who's obviously still doing shifts and um, you know in the emergency room and, and is an emergency physician, you know, that, that is something that you can really appreciate. Right. And, sure. and it's like when you said, you know, if someone 10 States away comes into your house and, you know, wants, wants some antibiotic that they're allergic to and you end up giving it and you end up in trouble, you'd rather be caught before that happened. Right. So of course it's definitely, you know, as, as a doctor once myself, it's that sort of thing. Because people always ask me, you know, what technology are you most excited about? And I, I never, I never say blockchain or, or holograms or, or whatever kind of nonsense is around, but I always just say it's the things that solve problems. That's and right. Something like that, that makes me just think, yeah, that would have stopped this, 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 and this happening that I've seen in my career. All of a sudden you're like, oh, you can almost just feel the ROI, right? That's right. Your ground floor clinician self, as well as I suppose your, you know, president, CEO, CMO self as well. And it is just about solving problems, right? For entrepreneurs yeah. and for entrepreneurs and for everybody that runs these organizations in leadership. I think that's the most important thing because at the end of the day, we're all here to try and make the quality of care better for patients. We're just trying to do it in our own way with our own budget constraints and all the rest of it. But it's whatever that we can pull together that solves all these things. And that sounds like a really good solution to do it is what I'll say. Definitely. Yeah, it's a great one. Yeah. Um, so listen, Anthony, this has been an absolute pleasure. I can't believe how quickly the time has flown by. Um, the way that we end these podcasts is I just hand back over to you to summarize a bit about yourself, a bit about what you're up to, um, at Cooper and yeah, to just close us out with any asks you might have of our audience. So by all means, take it away. I think one of the, one of the, one of the asks I would have is that, uh, this is a very difficult time with respect to healthcare when it comes to what's happening with COVID. And there's so much we don't know about this virus right now. Um, I think that if you were to look back in history, I suspect that at this point in HIV, we didn't even know it was sexually transmitted. So we're, as the U.S. healthcare system or wherever you're, you're getting care, we're trying to do things to protect staff, to protect patients, to protect everyone. And I know it's super hard right now with the visitor restrictions and things that healthcare systems are doing. And it can be really difficult if you are a patient or a patient's family member. And that balancing act is one that's very frustrating. So I think, um, well, I am uh, incredibly happy that um, at least in the U.S., everyone's recognizing um, healthcare workers as heroes. I also recognize for those people that have 
um, family members that come into the hospital, they get very frustrated that there are these restrictions on things like visiting hours and those kinds of things that, that know that everyone, not just at my organization, but everywhere is trying to balance those things um, to do so that everyone can do their best. So um, that we appreciate here um, that everyone is, is calling healthcare workers the heroes, that, that name that they have always deserved, um, that there is some frustration and we're, we're doing our best. And I know everyone is doing their best to try to, to do that balance. So that would be my, my ask. So rather than um, one of your other guests who's trying to you know, get in touch to try to get some, some VC money or something <laughs> like that, my, mine is, um, is for everyone to look out for each other. I mean, we will do our part of trying to take care of people and everyone else do their part by trying to stay safe and, and understand that we're still very early in understanding a lot that has to do with what's happening in the world with respect to this disease. Amazing. And if people want to get in touch with you, Anthony, or indeed uh, at Cooper Health, what's the best way for them to, uh, to get in touch with you? Sure. So uh, at our website, Cooper University Healthcare, um, and there's a bunch of different ways uh, they, can, they can get to that. Um, and then on Twitter, it's AJ Mazzarelli. Uh, and on Facebook, we're at Cooper Health. Thank you so much, Anthony. Really appreciate you joining. And yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, James. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.